Cassie and I had our last swim in our pool yesterday because we like to try and spread our swimming season as far into autumn as we can and as early into spring. But the water temperature yesterday was 12 degrees. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm still like a f still sort of shaking. It's not nerves, it's just yesterday's swim. We're looking at Acts chapter 19 this morning and um, I'd encourage you to open your Bible or as we say these days, tablets. Lachlan's going to read for us in a moment. You might need, oh you've got a microphone. I, I miss the rustle of pages and um, I'm more and more feeling after a couple of decades I suppose of looking at screens that well, personally, I've begun reading a paper Bible as often as I can because you lose, you lose something with the screen. And I'm not just trying to be old-fashioned, but I'm sure you remember, if you've, if you've been uh, in Christ for some time, how you get quite familiar with where on a page something is and you can find it because you know where to look for it. You know what I mean, don't you? You can't do that on a tablet or on your phone because every time you open the thing up it looks different and the app's changed its rules and can you even find the app and how come it used to be a green app and now it's a red app and <laughs> where does it end? So um, open your Bible. We're going to read Acts chapter 19. We're not going to read all of it because it's really long. It's, uh, I forget how many verses, but lots. We'll read almost all of it, and we won't leave out anything that, that's essential to today's message, but we're also going to read it backwards. There are three stories in Acts chapter 19, and um, we're going to start with the last story, which Lachlan will read for us, and it begins at verse 21, and Lachlan will read through to verse 24. Thank you. 34, beg your pardon. Now, after these things have been accomplished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through to Macedonia and Achaia, and then to go into Jerusalem. He said, after I've gone there, I must also see Rome. So he went with his two helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he himself stayed some lo time longer in Asia. About that time there was no disturbance bro that broke out concerning his way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made the shrines of um, Artemis, brought no little business to the Artemis. Uh, sorry. Um, a man called Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the Artesians. Um, these he gathered together with, with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be scorned. And she will be deprived of her great majesty that brought all of Asia and the world to worship her. When they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city had fallen into confusion, and people rushed together to the theatre, dragging with them Jaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's travelling companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd. Um, sorry. Um, Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him, 
Even some of the officials of the provinces of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him messages urging him not to venture into the theatre. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd had given instructions to Alexandra, whom the Jews had pushed forward, and Alexandra motioned for silence, and they tried to make a defence before the people. But when they, they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all of them shouted in union, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Thank you very much, Lachlan. So it's quite a, um, quite a dramatic story. The... Um, the temple of Artemis was a very large building. There's, there's almost nothing to see of it anymore. But, and it was rebuilt a number of times because Artemis is a god that, that stretches through both the Greek and the Roman culture over several centuries, one of the very major gods of the time. The temple was, in its day, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've, you've heard of those, perhaps, the Colossus of Rhodes and the, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and six others, five others, four others. It was a very, very large building. And so to have it full of people shouting for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, is extraordinary. But, but to put it in its setting, the whole chapter is extraordinary. And what is utterly extraordinary is Paul's ministry. We'll hear in another reading that he, um, people are taking cloths and handkerchiefs that have, and aprons that have touched Paul and, and taking them to people and putting them with sick people and those people are getting healed. Quite extraordinary. We'll hear as well that Paul taught for two years freely so much that in the whole of Asia, it says in your Bible, which really means the Roman province of Asia, not Asia as we think of it today. In the whole of, uh, in the, whole of the province of Asia, everybody after his two years of speaking, had heard of the name of the Lord. We'll hear a story that says that um, at the end of what Lachlan spoke about, there. no, no, it's, it's not that story. It's in the middle of the chapter. Let me read it. A number of people who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly, and when the, when the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So in this chapter, there's an awful lot happening. There's this riot at the end of the chapter, but there's this astonishing growth of the church, an incredibly fruitful and prolific era in, in Paul's ministry with astonishing miracles and all sorts of things. All sorts of things happening. Well... In the story that Lachlan read for it, for us, in its very heart there is control. There's a man called Demetrius, who's a silversmith, and he is um, calling people together and in a sense instilling fear in them because he's saying to them, we make a lot of money out of this and there's a lot of money flowing around in the ancient world. Don't think of it as necessarily a time of poverty. We just read about 50,000 silver coins purely in the value of books. Separate story, not the riot. There's a lot of money and a lot of profit being made out of Artemis and it's supporting 
Ephesus. This is the centre of Ephesus. So Demetrius is, is putting fear into people in a sense by saying, we may lose. We may lose our money. We may lose our occupation. Sort of as an afterthought, he says, gosh, we might even lose Artemis. I'm not sure that that is his primary concern, but, but, but it could be as well. Because these people are worshipping an idol. And idolatry is about control, isn't it? Idolatry is about control. When I, I sat the um, HSC exam in 1979, which is an alarming number, isn't it? Because there are fewer and fewer people who were actually even alive in 1979. <laughs> Lot, lots of you were, I know, but, um, but in the broader world, not just the narrow confines of our congregation. When, when, when I think of that, it, and it's sort of seared into my mind because I'd never sat, I went to a small private school and I'd never sat a public exam and we went to a different school, this big scary public school, huge hall, all these little, little seat and couldn't see any of my classmates and there's these very official looking people wandering around the room. But on my, on my little desk, in the little pencil groove that runs across the front, you know? I had this little tiki. Do you know what a tiki is? They're from New Zealand, I think, aren't they? And some relative had given it to me. I can still see it quite clearly. I don't know what happened to it. Actually, I think I do. I think I broke it on purpose. I'm not sure when I did that, but it was sitting in the pencil groove. Why was it there? And I, I've been reflecting on it the last couple of days. Why was that there? I didn't really believe that it would make any difference, but perhaps I did. Certainly I thought, well, it couldn't hurt. And even though I didn't necessarily believe it would make a difference, I wasn't willing to get rid of it just in case it did. Idolatry is this need to control life. Life, life is very scary. It's immensely uncertain. We we sort of shroud ourselves in a sense of security, but life is not all that secure, is it? Things can happen in a moment to any of us, sometimes even to all of us, that can change every aspect of our future. So life, life has this inherent fragility in it, and it's a human response to want to seek shelter and safety and stability and control. We so much want to control our environment. In this story, you also read of the need to control others. Demetrius, with his network of silversmiths, is controlling others in a big way. It says in the story that there are lots of people in the crowd who don't even know why they're there. They've been swept up into this great building and they've no idea even why. They, they are being controlled. They're being controlled by the people that are urging the rabble, but they're also being controlled by something within them that, that is forcing them to join in and be part of the mob because that's where the safety is. Idolatry is a very complex thing. Now, the idol they're worshipping is Artemis, and in the story it says that in the temple there of Artemis there is the, um, the god that fell from the sky. I don't know whether you noticed that in the reading. Most writers think that this is a meteorite. Well, I've seen meteorites because in the, on the salt lakes of central Australia, they're, they're easy to find because they're black 
and people go looking for them on the salt lakes and find them and, and, and make quite good money. I once saw a meteorite which was a perfect ring, a perfect circle, because they fall through the air and they're mostly iron and metals like that and they sort of burn and they're black and they're shiny. But this one had somehow as it flew through the air had formed itself into a perfect ring. It was too small to put on your finger, but it was a meteorite. Black, shiny things that stand out on salt lakes. Now, I've seen a meteorite and I've also seen a statue of the idol of Artemis. And I don't recommend you look this up because it's not a pretty thing. And it doesn't look anything like a meteorite. Artemis is a many, many breasted idol of fertility. And so there's this weirdness about idolatry and it always looks weird because you think, how could, how could anybody think that that is going to help them? How could, you, how could you possibly think that my little tiki on my exam table is going to help me? How would, it, how would this idol or the meteorite actually change things? But look at the things that we put our trust in. We do at times put our trust in the weirdest things. Think then about um, idolatry because that, sorry, I used the wrong word there. Think then about addiction because that's also idolatry. The things that we trust to hold us and keep us and we think that because it's, because it's something that we've done that we're in control of it. One of the things that Demetrius says to the crowd is these people, talking about Paul and the Christians, they are saying that gods made with hands are not gods. They're saying that the gods that we make with our hands aren't gods at all. Idols are things that were made by hand and because they were made by hand you think that well that it would be in your control wouldn't it if you made it by your hands then you you the idol is controlled by you and you can use the idol to get where you want to get because it'll keep you safe it will it will protect you from the uncertainties around you it will bring you good fortune but in the end it has power over you it's not the other way around, is it? And it's very clear in an addiction of any sort. You know you can be addicted to anything at all. I've got this strange addiction which I'll share with you. Are you interested in no? <laughs> it's shirts. <laughs> and I'm always a bit concerned about shirts and I always need to know that my shirt won't stop there. See? And on me, that's... That's difficult because a lot of shirts stop there on me. Trousers used to always stop there on me. Now you, you can buy trousers now that go all the way to your shoes. <laughs> this was not true. When I was young, I used to sew colourful bits of material on the bottom of my trousers because they would not reach my shoes. And so all my trousers when I went to, to high school had orange and green and whatever bits along the bottom. Why am I telling you this? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lovely story. I really enjoy this travel into memory. But when I'm, when I'm doing something like this, speaking, in the morning, I've got to know that I've got a, a good shirt. You know, it's got to be the right shirt. And if I've got a new one that's really good, oh, I feel really good. Now, you've got to be so careful because... Almost anything 
can be an idol. It's not just bad things that are idols. It's almost anything that you invest your trust in, anything that you rely on to save you. Now, maybe I'm only wanting to be saved from the embarrassment of exposed wrists, which isn't really that embarrassing after all. But what I'm really wanting to be saved from is my insecurity, my nervousness about sitting here and saying things. And, and, and on and on and on, on it goes. Even the best things that God has given us can become idols. A good example is this. I used to speak frequently in churches all the time. and There's nothing quite like having a couple of hundred people think that you're funny. You know, that, that just sort of like, oh, I like that. Well, you've got to be so careful, haven't you? Because my trust needs to remain in Christ, not in the buzz I get from telling a funny joke about my trousers. It's got to be about Christ. And the temptation to idolatry is, is so present. Now, in Exodus 20, it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. It's the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So there is very clearly commandment that says, no idols. It's quite extraordinary that these people shouted for two hours. It's a long time, isn't it? I read, I heard a, a documentary recently about the Australian singer Joan Sutherland, Dame Joan Sutherland, who was one of the world's very great soprano opera singers. And her, her breakthrough into the you know, the, the worldwide attention came at the, uh, the Covent Garden Theatre in London in 1956, I think that's right. And there was a standing ovation for her performance that lasted for 19 minutes. And when I heard that, I thought that, I, I just find that hard to imagine that people would stand to their feet clapping for 19 minutes, but that's what happened. It's... It's recorded, even the curious number. It's not 20, it's not 17 or 18, it's 19 minutes. But this is two hours. For two hours, people are shouting, Great is God of the Art, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why are they doing that? It's something to do with the desperate human need to remain in control their feeling that their lifestyle might be threatened. They're feeling perhaps, perhaps at a subconscious level, that Artemis might not be all that we've been saying she is after all. All these miracles are happening. Really good things are happening to people and it's got nothing to do with Artemis. But we're going to shout it because the louder we shout it, the more we'll feel it's true. The more noise we can make, the less doubt we'll feel. There's something about control if we grasp it, that will always end in noise and usually in violence of some sort. When humans take control, grasp for control, it ends up noisy and violent. Which brings us to our second reading, which Karen is going to share with us. And um, the microphone, is it, can you see it? Is it still there? Yep. This reading comes from... Uh, the middle of the chapter, remember we're working from the end of 
Acts 19. And so this reading is in the middle and it's from uh, verses 11 to 20. Okay. The sons of Sceva. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to to the sick, their diseases left them. The evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them all, overpowered them that they'd fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practised magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. Thank you, Karen. There's such a lot in this chapter, isn't there? It's like, how are we going to cover the whole of chapter 19 in one morning? But it all hangs together so wonderfully, I think. Wouldn't it be a curious um, business card if you went to the, you know when you go to the coffee shop and there's the little board that people pin everything on and you see the business card or on the counter at the truck stop and it says itinerant Jewish exorcist. That would be a curious thing to see, wouldn't it? What exactly is an itinerant Jewish exorcist? But what would be stranger would be if there were seven business cards all in a row that said, and they've all got the same surname. That would be odd, wouldn't it? So there are these, these guys and it's such a I didn't look up this, but it's such a strange notion, isn't it? An itinerant Jewish exorcist. And the story has almost a comic flavour to it, especially the notion that, that this demoniac, this possessed man, single-handedly beats up seven others and strips them naked and sends them out of the house, having been beaten. But at the heart of this rather curious story, once again, is control. This story also is about control. The sons of Sceva have heard of the astounding things that this Christian group called away with their leader Paul is doing. And I don't know how we understand what their motive is. Perhaps the seven sons of Sceva are profiteers. Perhaps they're, they're, they're in the market for um, some easy money because in the ancient world you don't have good medicine to go to when you're when you're in trouble and the presence of demons was evidently a very common thing and so there was probably a pretty good trade in getting rid of them if you could perhaps that's not their motive perhaps they were very sincere perhaps they were 
um, sincere itinerant Jewish exorcists who, in their heart of hearts, wanted to help people. I don't really know. But either way, they had heard that there was a new tool that you could grab and use, and it's the name of Jesus. We've heard about this name of Jesus. It's pretty good. It works better than all the other stuff. So let's give it a go. It didn't work for them. Why didn't it work for them? Well, the first story we read was about idolatry, and that I think that every, every person alive, and certainly every one of us, needs to know at times that we must flee idols. Do you know that beautiful verse in um, the book of Jonah that says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. And at any time we cling to an idol, we lose the grace that God could have poured into our need at that point. So we're in trouble and we hang on to our addiction and by doing that, we cut off the flow of God's grace that would have been more than enough to sort the thing. So that, that idolatry in the first story we read, it's, it's a current issue. It's not, it's not yesterday, it's current for all of us. However, the issue in this story, the middle one, is perhaps even more relevant and important to us. The sons of Sceva grab the name of Jesus and try and use it, and it doesn't work. And what, what we need to be reminded of sometimes, I think, and, and careful about is our use of the name of God. You know, the, the, the third commandment, we read the second commandment. Now, the third commandment in Exodus chapter 20 says, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. So that's blasphemy in some translations. And when we think of blasphemy, I bet most of you think that it's, it's what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer. That's, that's blasphemy, isn't it? Now, that isn't blasphemy at all. Blasphemy is when anybody takes the name of God and the name of God means, in a sense, God. God. And tries to use that name for control. And I'm, I'm sure we've all done it. Don't we do it when we desperately pray that our circumstances will be different to, the, to what we see? And haven't you noticed that God is not nearly as interested in changing our circumstances as we used to think he was, yeah? When you were young, if you're anything like me, you believed that, that the world could be turned inside out by prayer alone, and certainly anything happening in my life could be solved if only I prayed more. How many times have you said or have you heard people say, I really need to pray more? I really need to read the Bible more? Why do we say that? Because something's out of control in our life, and we think, this, I could, this could be fixed if only, if only I prayed more, if only I prayed more. You see, our life is given to us by God and he is with us in our life. And if we, if we take his name and try and constantly force our life into a different thing by using his name, I reckon that's, that's blasphemy. So much Christian energy certainly my Christian energy, has been consumed, especially when I was a young man, into this idealised vision of myself and how I could be this and how my family could go there and my children could be that if only I prayed hard enough. I just no longer believe that that is faith. 
I used to believe that faith was how you change things. And, and I'm not saying that that isn't also true. I pray. I pray for my children. I pray for myself. Karen and I pray for the things that need prayer. But to me, faith is so much more about knowing that God is with me as I walk through the life that he has given me, no matter what it looks like. It doesn't always look real good, but I'm with God in it. And his name is with me as I walk through my life. This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you this morning have trouble with that idea that this is the day that the Lord has made because you would rejoice more if it was a little bit different? (laughs) I found yesterday a really hard day to rejoice in. Not only because of the temperature in our pool. It was just a grey, sticky day and I was a bit anxious about what I was going to say today because I hadn't really nailed it all down properly yet. Oh, today's just sunny and clear and I just can't wait to get out of here because it's a beautiful day out there. You can rejoice in some days but not in others. But this is the day the Lord has made. And there isn't a better day that you can rejoice in. This is the day, you know. And God is with us in this day. God is not with us in your imaginary other day, which is better than this day. I once knew a man, I still know him, who travelled his whole life, is still travelling, with an absolute certainty that he missed the will of God at one point in his life and he was now operating in God's plan B. He even used that expression. No, 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 no. This is the day the Lord has made and we rejoice because the name is with us. We are in the name of Jesus. You get my point, don't you? So it's a story again about control. Let's, uh, we need, what we need to do now is read the third story. And I'm going to read it to you. It's, um, it's the first seven verses of 19, chapter 19. Reading from verse 1. While, Paulus, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he said, into what then were you baptised? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. This also is a story about control. But it's not a story about grasping for control or taking control. It's a story about surrendering control. It's it's a curious story to me because of its contrast to the other two. You know, when you were um, at school, 1979 for me, perhaps more recently for you or perhaps a whole lot older, you know. I wonder if there's anybody here today who was at school in 1950. 49. Don't show me your hands. Do you remember how if you had a a drama lesson, it's always so much easier to play the bad guy than the good guy? Do you remember that 
that sort of dynamic. It's, it's so much easier to pretend to be the villain, isn't it? And if you, if you get the, the role in the play of being the good guy, it's sort of, it's just not, not very easy. It's so easy to pretend to be nasty. It's hard to pretend to be good because you seem like a bit of a wuss. Why do I say that? Because this story, it doesn't have all the drama and whiz and bang and noise of the other two. The other two are such extraordinary stories. This story, it's a bit open-ended. On hearing this, they were baptised. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And you think, yes, yes. And it says, there were about 12. <laughs> I love the way it says about 12. Like, well, was it 12? <laughs> no, 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 it was about 12. Well, who was watching? Uh, I don't know, it was about 12. It's like, so what an anticlimactic story. But of course it isn't. It, it begs the question. The question is, well, what happened next? We know what happened next because these about 12 become the core group of Paul's preaching for two years. This group of Christians that, that host their leader Paul in his ministry, that's them. They become the Ephesian church, the great church in Ephesus. These about 12 grow and become the source of the miraculous things that, that Karen and, and um, our first... Lachlan! <laughs> Thank you, Matt. So did anybody hear Matt say that or did he just have this voice just aimed straight at... <laughs> You're like a prompt. I need a... That's what I need. I need a prompt. I'm going to get somebody to sit there. Karen's my prompt, but what she prompts me about isn't so much what I should say as what I should not say. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Stop telling. No more stories, she says. No more stories. <laughs> All right, moving on. The story that, that sort of ends so openly is a wonderful challenge to us as well. Because to me, it, 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 it begs an answer from me. What, what will I do? What, what will happen in my life? I've been baptised into Jesus. It seems like these disciples, they're called disciples, were, were not disciples of Christ. They were disciples of John. And different writers make a lot out of this little few verses and it's used for all sorts of ideas about baptism. But to me, it's a story that just begs the answer. I've been baptised in Christ Jesus. I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Personally, I've spoken in tongues frequently. But what will happen? What, what will happen? It, the, the story doesn't tell, really. It's up to me. What, what will happen? And we know the answer because it's written in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens. That's where the leading of the Spirit takes us. And do you notice that in all of those nine words, there is no controlling aspect. We, we've surrendered control and so we're able to love. You can't love somebody if you're trying to control them, can you? That's not love. Patience, kindness, goodness, these things are not controlling things. They result from a surrendered heart. If I surrender my life to God and, and, and relinquish my control, I'm free to love. I'm free to give 
entirely of who I am because I know that God will refill me. I can, I can spend my... Paul says I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I think it's in the Corinthian, Second Corinthian, I think. He, he can afford to give of himself utterly because his source is not idolatry, his source is not the, the control of his life that he, that he begs God for, his source is faith. And God refills him and he can empty himself. These nine words are about surrendering our control to God. And out of that comes such fruitfulness and such life and such joy and such abundance. But isn't it hard to surrender control? And I know the last one of the nine is self-control, which sounds like it's about control, and it is. But the hardest thing is to control ourselves, isn't it? And we can only really control ourselves when we've relinquished the need to control our environment and our friends and our, and our partner and our children and our future. Self-control can only flourish when we've divested ourselves of the need to be in control. I, I wonder if you get that, but it, I'm sure that that's true. Well, to wrap it up a little bit now, we've, we've seen... Three stories, and I'm going to oversimplify it now, so don't, don't, don't be too alarmed. Two stories are colourful stories, vibrant in a bad way, but vibrant nonetheless. Stories about people grasping for control in one way or another, and there are stories that are characterised by noise and violence of one form or another. And we've read one story, which is a simpler story of people who surrender control and who move away from the noise and violence of, of control into the peaceful fruitfulness of God's kingdom that follows. So to oversimplify it even further, two stories about noise and violence and one story about peace and rest. Grossly oversimplified but just, just let that sit with you. Two stories about noise and violence and, and one story about peace and rest. And astonishingly, the quiet, surrendered people are right there in the middle of all the noise and violence. They're in the story. They're right there in the midst of it. But they are people of peace and joy and kindness and fruitfulness and sacrifice and, and the fruit of the Spirit. And I think that it, the chapter asks me to choose where I will be. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah that says, in rest and repentance is your strength. In quiet, I haven't quoted it quite right, have I? In quietness and trust is your strength. In rest and repentance is your salvation. And I'm, I'm called by chapter 19 to decide where do I belong? Am I a controller or will I relinquish the control of my life? And this is a fresh question. For me, it's a daily question. What will I do? I don't think there's ever been a time where there was more noise in our environment, more distraction, more, in a sense, vi well, violence. I, I suggest you think about this. It's, it's a big question, but... This is an intense moment in the world's history and it's pressing on us. The vo I remember reading years ago that 
in a whole lifetime, a medieval scholar would not be exposed to the information in a single Saturday newspaper in his entire life. And yet we're just swamped every minute of every day by endless noise. And I would urge you so strongly to find God in rest and quietness because in surrendering to him, there's great fruitfulness. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Matt in, led us in, in, a, in a prayer where he invited us to be aware of our breathing. Do you remember that? And I, I suspect that some people found that a, a surprising element of a, of a traditional Baptist service. Would I be right? N not all of us, but some of us might have thought, oh, that's interesting. And certainly in, in my more religious background, that would have been like, oh, uh-oh, where are we heading now? This doesn't sound right to me. But I loved it myself. Several years ago, I, w I was in correspondence. I corresponded with a nun who had motor neurone disease, which is the condition I was thought to have had more than a decade ago. And um, she had need of a, a ventilator like the, the one that I breathe with too. And they're not very easy to get. Initially, it's a pretty weird thing and it's not easy at all. And she couldn't tolerate it. And she found it so very difficult, but her life actually depended on it. And um, she's no longer alive. But I, I, had, I had this idea which had sort of grown out of my own spiritual path somehow. And I said to her, with the ventilator, what you should try, just try and make, make your breathing a meditation. And, and with your inward breath, say, Christ within me. And with your outward breath, say, and I within him. Christ within, you can't speak breathing outwards, can you? Did you know that Central Australian Indigenous people do speak by breathing inwards? And they, it's interesting, they do it when they're telling secrets. It's like, <laughs> and it's a bit hard to understand. It's like, I'm not going to let this word pass my lips, so I'm going to say it inwards. So I can't say inwards, Christ within me, because I'm breathing out while I say it, but... With every breath, I said to my friend, the nun, with every breath, Christ within me, and, and with every exhale, and I within him. Because those, those are sort of a, a condensation of our, our faith. We are, we are in Christ, and he is within us. The body of Christ is, is that. And I enjoyed Matt's prayer, and I... Um, want to encourage you towards prayer that is awaiting on God. I love the, 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 the 60 second psalm because twice in the psalm it says, um, for, God, for God alone my soul in silence waits. It's often in the psalms, this idea of waiting in God, but it's, it's crystallised there. For God alone my soul in silence waits. And I, I just urge you to bring a depth of quietness and listening into your spiritual life. Now, this is harder than it used to be because we're bombarded. It's hard to even find a quiet time in the day because there's always something going on, isn't it? Your phone will ding. Well, goodness knows what will happen. Or you'll ding and think, oh, I might just have a look. But try, <laughs> try and find quietness in your spiritual life. Try and develop 
a sense of waiting on God. Don't, don't think I'm listening for what God is going to say. Oh, I just can't hear him. That's not waiting on God. The object of waiting on God isn't necessarily to hear God. It's to be in his presence. To wait with God. And you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you will find the fruitfulness in your life that Christ has promised us. And you will enjoy the day that the Lord has made. <coughs> prayer that waits instead of prayer that, that asks. Prayer that doesn't seek to change anything at all. Just prayer. That doesn't mean that there aren't other ways to pray. It doesn't mean that our, our, our prayer meeting in our, in our church doesn't also call on the name of God for the things that he's laid on our heart. I'm not saying that there, is, that there aren't other prayers, but reject the noise of the world and, and pray quietly. Let's, as Matt comes back up and brings his musician's team, let's take a moment to be quiet with God. You might even be brave enough to experiment and with your inward breath say in your heart, Christ within me and with your outward breath and I within him. Amen.